0: The telescope, in some sense, is the most blasphemous, the most seditious, the most revolutionary, and the most splendorous instrument of science. This is the assessment of theoretical physicist Kaku. Indeed, the telescope has transformed our perception of the universe and our place within it. But perhaps more powerful than the instrument itself was the man who wielded it four centuries ago. Galileo Galilei. He was an Italian mathematician, astronomer, engineer, artist, and author. A Renaissance man in every sense of the word, with a great intellect and an even greater ego. In his lifetime, he gazed upon celestial vistas that human eyes had never before beheld, and saw the final proof that everything humanity believed we knew about the universe was wrong. Risking torture and execution, he had the hubris to challenge the most powerful institution on Earth, to vindicate his life's work, to reveal the universe to mankind. And in the process, he gave birth to modern science. My name's Chris Grant. We hope you'll join us today at Universe University as we tell the story of Galileo, the writer, the scientist, the celebrity, the heretic. On a clear night, the universe extends infinitely above our heads. Just after sunset, a vast darkness speckled with tiny points of light. Human beings have beheld this cosmic tapestry above our heads for thousands of years. And of course, there's the moon, an orb that appears far brighter than any star. Before the invention of electric light bulbs, thousands of stars were visible in the night sky. These points of light slowly appear to move over the course of an evening, On a single night, most stars appear to rise in the east and set in the west. As the weeks and months pass, different clusters of stars are more prominent as the seasons change. And among the stars, there are just a few other points of light that seem to move very differently. Night after night, these points of light seem to move slowly to the east in the Earth's sky. Occasionally, though, for a few months out of the year, they reverse their course and head west, then resume their previous course again, turning around to continue east. The ancient Greeks called them wandering stars. Today, we call them planets. Named after Roman gods, there are five today that are visible to the naked eye—Mercury, Venus— Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Because every human on Earth can see these points of light with the naked eye, these facts about them have never been disputed. Yet for thousands of years, we wondered what they were, and precisely where they were up in the night sky. Centuries before Galileo, the ancient Greeks and Romans had many brilliant minds among them, seeking to find such answers. They were early pioneers who accomplished amazing feats of engineering, architecture, and science. One of them was Eratosthenes, the man who invented the discipline of geography. By measuring shadows, Eratosthenes successfully calculated the circumference of the earth with remarkable accuracy. The ancient Greeks had a fair idea of the earth's size and shape as we know it today, but of course. Earth was stationary. It did not move. That was a fact that was even more self-evident than the motions of the stars and the planets themselves. The Greek philosopher Aristotle believed that the Earth was surrounded by incredibly enormous, clear crystalline spheres, each larger than the next, one inside the other, spheres within spheres. Upon each of the individual spheres sat a planet, or stars. As the spheres rotated, the planets and stars upon them moved throughout the sky. But if the planets orbited around the Earth, why did they appear to reverse their course for several months, moving backwards before returning to their previous course? The proposed solution came from Claudius Ptolemy, a Greco-Roman mathematician and astrologer. Epicycles. Not only were the planets orbiting around the earth, but they were spinning in smaller circles as they moved. Imagine the planets moved much like a ball, tethered to a string, carried by a small child walking around a circular track. All the while, the walking child spins the ball over the top of their head as they walk. This was how the Greeks and Romans believed the planets moved. Epicycles required complex mathematical calculations, but they could accurately predict the strange movements of the planets in the night sky. After studying Ptolemy's writings on astronomy, one Spanish king remarked, If the Lord Almighty had consulted me before embarking on creation, I would have recommended something simpler. But the Roman Empire which invented such rigorous scientific examination of the universe, was in decline, and would eventually collapse under its own weight, bringing forth the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages in Europe. For one millennium, science and astronomy stood still in the Western world. In that time, this was humanity's view of the universe. A fixed Earth orbited by five planets, planets that were constantly twirling in loop-de-loop patterns of epicycles in the cosmos above, and a sun that orbited the Earth once every 24 hours, along with a moon that orbited the Earth once a month. Below the heavens, the sphere of the Earth, firm, fixed, unmovable, and unmoving. There is no way to tell Galileo's story Without first telling the story of a Polish servant of the Catholic Church born in the 1400s, Nikolai Kopernik. Today, we know him better as Nicholas Copernicus. At 19 years old, he was sent to study at one of the oldest and most respected universities in Central Europe. His uncle was the church bishop of Varmia in what is now modern day Poland motto of his university, plus ratio quam vis, reason is worth more than power. At the time, all Catholic universities required students like Copernicus to pass seven major subjects before they could move on to their study of theology. Astronomy was one of them, a discipline that offered a transcendent study of God's creation. The Bible's Old Testament book of Psalms stated, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Astronomy also offered a calendar for the year and marked church holidays. The winter solstice, with the shortest period of sunlight in the year, was a harbinger of Christmas. There were no telescopes during the time of Copernicus, only primitive tools for rudimentary measurement, an instrument known as a troquatum, which was used to measure the movement of the moon and stars. A quadrant measured the height of the sun above the horizon. Copernicus would become a superb mathematician and obtain degrees in divinity, law, and medicine before going on to serve at a massive, gothic brick cathedral in Frombork near the Polish coastline. Despite his obligations to the church, he would retain his fascination with astronomy. Sadly, though, fog and mist from the Baltic Sea made astronomy very difficult at Fromburg, if not impossible. Copernicus had always found the epicycles of Ptolemy to be far too confusing and complex, even though they were the foundation of modern astronomy. At the time, he thought God's creation should be more ordered and more perfect. How could planets be traveling in dizzying loop-de-loop patterns around the Earth? Surely it would have made more sense if they were in perfect circular orbits. In the dreary climate of Frombork, a heretical thought crept into the mind of Copernicus. He couldn't conduct many observations himself, but he had access to centuries of astronomical records. Over a period of years, he poured over pages upon pages of numbers and data, recalculating. There was a simpler way to conceive of the orbits of the planets, but it required the unthinkable, removing the Earth from the center of the cosmos and placing the Sun at the center instead, setting the Earth in orbit around it. Not only would the Earth be traveling around the Sun, but spinning once every 24 hours to cause night and day. In the 1500s, Copernicus crafted the first known image of a heliocentric or sun-centered solar system, with six planets orbiting around it, including the Earth. All the math seemed to fit, and the twirling, spinning epicycles of Ptolemy were replaced with smooth and uniform orbits. Planets appeared to move forward, then backward, then forward again, but this was just an optical illusion. In reality, the Earth was moving too, right alongside them, sometimes catching up to them, sometimes being left behind. Copernicus prepared a comprehensive manuscript of his findings, complete with pages of math to demonstrate how it would all fit together. Such a conception of the universe was elegant in its simplicity. and made perfect sense, but there was a catch. It involved discarding all the foundations of classical physics and modern astronomy abandoning more than a millennium of accepted science. Then there was the fact that it would be in contradiction of church doctrine. In the Old Testament book of Joshua in the Bible, the text clearly states that the Lord God miraculously caused the sun to stand still in the sky during the Battle of Gibeon, allowing the Israelites more daylight to continue fighting and vanquish their enemies. If God halted the sun in a miracle, that would imply that the sun was normally moving in the course of each day, or at least this was the Catholic Church's interpretation. In short, in the eyes of the largest religious order on earth, the most powerful institution in the Western world, God had created the earth and placed it at the center of the universe, unmoving and the sun and the rest of the cosmos orbited around it. Anything else was heresy. Copernicus was a priest in the Catholic Church at a time when the Protestant Reformation was in full swing. Martin Luther had already written his 95 theses, challenging the Catholic Church on its most fundamental doctrines. And the new Lutheranism, as it was called, was beginning to sweep across Western Europe. Yet despite religious implications, there was something Copernicus feared even more than being charged as a heretic, being humiliated as an academic. He wasn't so much worried about being branded a heretic, he was more worried that he might be laughed at. People did not merely believe that the earth was unmoving because the church said it was so. They believed it because their own senses made it self-evident. If the Earth were flying through the universe, spinning as it moved, birds flying through the air would be left behind as the Earth spun forward underneath them. People and objects would be flung off its surface. Any person standing still on solid ground felt not even the slightest sensation of movement, let alone that the Earth was spinning at a thousand miles per hour and hurtling in an orbit around the sun, moving through space at 18 miles per second. For many, the idea was simply too absurd to even imagine. And in the end, Copernicus had no new evidence to prove his theory. For decades, he kept his findings to himself. Occasionally, he would share his manuscript or pieces of it with close friends in his inner circle. Many of them were very complimentary, encouraging him to publish. But Copernicus didn't dare risk it. Finally, one man proved to be more persuasive than all the others, a German professor of mathematics who bore the name Reticus. Reticus had heard rumors of this manuscript and the theory within it, and implored Copernicus to publish. Now in his late 60s, the elderly Copernicus finally relented. On the revolutions of the heavenly spheres was first printed at a time when Copernicus had fallen into poor health due to a stroke. Copernicus had dedicated his book to the Pope of the Catholic Church. He had been in a coma in the spring of 1543, but in May he returned to consciousness. Opening his eyes, he was presented with the printed copy of his book in its final form, the culmination of his life's work. He died later that same day, buried in an unmarked grave at the Frombork Cathedral. After all, he was merely a humble servant of the church, a man who had found no fortune, no fame, and no scientific or academic notoriety. In the years after his death, many astronomers had very little to say about this new heliocentric theory. As meticulously as the book had been written, there was no proof, no new or special astronomical observations that showed one theory's superiority over another. In the end, Aristotle and Ptolemy remained the cornerstones of astronomy and physics taught at major universities. All that being said, the Catholic Church was still an institution determined to ensure that its subjects adhered to its dogma. Dominican friar and philosopher named Giordano Bruno found himself on trial for heresy when he questioned the divinity of Christ, doubted the virginity of Mary, the mother of Christ, and said he believed in the possibility of reincarnation after death. He had gone far further in questioning church doctrine than Copernicus. Bruno's trial was overseen by Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who was sometimes called the Hammer of Heretics. In 1600, Bruno was sentenced to death and burned alive in a market square in Rome. Among his many fringe beliefs, Bruno said that he accepted the new heliocentric theory, which placed the Earth as one planet among many orbiting the Sun. This was the world that Italian professor Galileo Galilei lived in. He taught geometry among other subjects, and enjoyed vacationing in Venice, sometimes called the "City of Water," situated on several islands with its countless interconnected canals, elaborate architecture, and hundreds of bridges. A heavy set man, Galileo was particularly fond of good food and good wine and while he never married, fathered three illegitimate children. In the early 1600s, an amusing trinket called Dutch Perspective Glasses caught Galileo's eye, a toy used as a novelty at parties to magnify objects further away, the forerunner to the modern telescope. In truth, no one can say who invented the Dutch Perspective Glasses but the first to apply for a formal patent was a man named Hans Lippershey. Galileo was a man of supreme ingenuity and believed that there might be other uses for such an instrument, but the first telescopes were not particularly powerful. Glassmaking was becoming increasingly more advanced, but Galileo quickly found that spectacle makers couldn't create the lenses he demanded. So he taught himself the tedious task of grinding his own lenses, the meticulous craft of shaping and reshaping glass. His finished product could magnify far off images about 30 times their normal size. At the time, the naval arsenal in Venice was the greatest maritime force in all of Europe. Presenting the device to the Venetian Senate Galileo offered a demonstration at the top of one of the highest points in the city, St. Mark's Tower. Aging senators climbed the lengthy flight of stairs to reach the top. From that vantage point, they had a clear view of the harbor and the sea out ahead. With Galileo's telescope, the Venetian military could spot ships hours before their arrival in Venice and they could clearly identify which flags the ships were flying, as well as what armaments they might have on board. The senators were impressed. Overnight, Galileo's salary doubled, and he was given a lifetime teaching appointment. But more than an entrepreneur, Galileo was a man of science, and knew full well his new instrument had other uses. In late 1609, the nights in Italy grew ever longer with the approach of winter. It was the first time that Galileo stepped into the garden courtyard beside his house at dusk and pointed his telescope towards the heavens. First, at the moon. Aristotle had believed that the moon was a perfect sphere, totally smooth. That assessment was accepted for countless centuries image that Galileo beheld was a very different world. Pockmarked with tiny craters, the moon also had mountain ranges, valleys, and ridges. Many of the features more closely resembled the mountains and deserts of the planet Earth. The moon was not a perfect, translucent, heavenly orb, but a real place not unlike the Earth planet Jupiter was particularly bright and prominent in the skies over Italy that night, so Galileo turned the eyepiece of his telescope towards that planet. There were different shades of blurry color on Jupiter, and very curious, a few stars positioned near the planet. No astronomical observation had ever recorded such points of light near Jupiter before. That was because no one had ever seen an image of Jupiter so large and so clear as the one Galileo saw that night. In a single evening, he beheld a universe that no human being in history had ever seen. He was seeing the cosmos as it truly was. Galileo would later say, I render grace to God that it has pleased him to make me alone, first observer of an admirable thing kept hidden all these ages. Galileo's backyard had been turned into the most advanced astronomical observatory on the face of the Earth. Dozens of sleepless nights would follow as he gazed at numerous celestial bodies. But perhaps most interesting was Jupiter. The four stars near the planet did not remain fixed, but over the course of just a few nights, each had changed their positions as they danced around the planet. There was another possibility. They weren't stars at all. They certainly didn't move like stars. They were moons. And Galileo was the first person in human history to witness moons orbiting a foreign planet. This strange phenomenon seemed to betray a long-held principle of astronomy. Conventional wisdom stated that everything in the heavens orbited around the Earth. Yet Galileo was witnessing, in real time, celestial bodies in orbit around another planet. Clearly, not everything in the universe was in orbit around the Earth. Had Copernicus been correct all along? Galileo took careful and precise notes on his observations from night to night. But he was also a skilled artist with a keen eye for contrast of light colors and dark colors. As the weeks passed, he made detailed drawings of the Earth's moon as seen through his telescope, even estimating the elevation of lunar mountains. He also tracked Jupiter's four moons as they orbited around the planet. Such observations weren't exactly in line with the Church's conception of the universe. But unlike Copernicus, Galileo now had a multitude of new discoveries and observations that could revolutionize astronomy forever. And better still, anyone with a telescope could look up upon his discoveries and verify them with their own eyes. Perhaps there would be skeptics among Church leadership, but Galileo was not without friends and connections, His former student, Benedetto Castelli, was deeply intrigued by his discoveries and quite enthusiastic about learning more. Castelli was a man of God and a member of the Order of St. Benedict. In writing his mentor and former professor, Castelli posed an intriguing proposition. If Copernicus was indeed correct and the planets were traveling around the sun, then the key to demonstrating this might be the planet Venus. Sometimes called the morning star or the evening star because of its bright shining appearance at dusk or dawn, Venus was actually known to be a planet rather than a star. It is typically the brightest object in the night sky, at least apart from the Earth's moon. Castelli suggested that if Galileo trained his telescope on this point of light over a period of months he might notice that the phases would change, much like the phases of the moon. Sometimes Venus might appear as a crescent, and sometimes it would appear full. Galileo looked, and the phases of Venus did indeed change, but not over the course of a few weeks like the phases of the moon, but over the course of months. Venus was indeed orbiting around the sun. In the spring of 1610, just a few months after he first pointed his telescope at the night sky, Galileo published his findings in The Starry Messenger, a book that was a combination of skilled writing and elaborate artwork. In this work, Galileo clearly stated that all the evidence confirmed the heliocentric model of Copernicus was correct. Galileo's bold new discoveries and the scientific renaissance he had created was now set on a collision course with church dogma and conventional astronomy. Galileo had church leaders questioning his work, and he had intellectual rivals jealous and incredulous about his new discoveries. In just a few years' time, he had risen rapidly in status as a public figure and was now the official court philosopher and mathematician for the Duke of Tuscany, The duke's mother was Madame Cristina, the Grand Duchess of Tuscany. One morning, she had invited Benedetto Castelli, among other guests, for a lavish brunch. With copies of Galileo's new book already in print, she asked Castelli about the author, his friend and former professor. Castelli assured the Grand Duchess Cristina that Galileo's discoveries were indeed very real and that others across Europe were already using their own telescopes to look at the sights described in his new book and to confirm them. But she was concerned that Galileo, her new court philosopher, might be dangerously close to contradicting scripture. Madame Christina even referenced the biblical Old Testament Battle of Gibeon, where the sun miraculously seemed to stand still in the sky, ceasing its movement. Castelli was quick to relay these concerns to Galileo. His response was not a mere defense of his astronomical observations. In a letter directly to Madame Cristina, Galileo offered a contrast of observation versus ideology, of facts versus faith. In the letter, he said, quote, Some years ago, as your serene highness well knows, I discovered in the heavens many things that had not been seen before our own age. The novelty of these things, as well as some consequences which followed from them, in contradiction to the physical notions commonly held among academic philosophers, stirred up against me no small number of professors, as if I had placed these things in the sky with my own hands in order to upset nature and overturn the sciences they seemed to forget that the increase of known truths stimulates the investigation, establishment, and growth of the arts, not their diminution or destruction. Showing a greater fondness for their own opinions than for truth, they sought to deny and disprove these new things which, if they had cared to look for themselves, their own senses would have demonstrated to them. To this end they hurled various charges— And published numerous writings filled with vain arguments, and they made the grave mistake of sprinkling these with passages taken from places in the Bible which they had failed to understand properly, and which were ill suited to their purposes. Galileo was a Catholic himself, and a believer in Christ, with plenty of religious advisers such as Castelli at his side. He had no intention of dismissing either the Church or Biblical Scripture. He truly believed that he could persuade Madame Christina that it was not him, but rather his critics, that had failed to understand the Bible. In this letter, Galileo quoted the famous words of the respected Cardinal Baronius, who said, "...the intention of the Holy Spirit is to teach how one goes to heaven." not how the heavens go. In short, the Bible was a spiritual guide, not an astronomy textbook. Copies of Galileo's letter were soon circulating all across Rome. Recently, in modern times, evidence has emerged that some within the Catholic Church were editing copies of Galileo's letters, changing his wording and statements here and there to make his assertions seem even more controversial than they already were. Determined to defend his work and his reputation, Galileo made plans to travel to Rome to make his case directly. His friends and advisors warned him against going to Rome. They reminded him that Venice was far more progressive and open-minded than the Vatican. But Galileo was convinced that his intellect and his powers of persuasion and oration could succeed in defending the ideas of Copernicus, as well as his own work. At the very least, he might succeed in convincing the Church to remain agnostic on this heliocentric theory. So he made the journey, speaking passionately, articulately, and perhaps arrogantly, in the hopes that the most powerful leaders of the Church might see his point of view. Galileo had intended to make a statement as a devout Catholic, about the importance of empirical evidence, logic, and reason as it related to biblical scripture. Yet there was an opinion steadily gaining strength in the Church, that in the chaotic midst of the Reformation, with the Church in turmoil, a prominent professor and author was boldly proclaiming that he had the authority to interpret the Bible, and he was basing it on the works of Copernicus several decades prior. The cardinals within the holy office of the Inquisition knew that they would be compelled to deal not just with Galileo, but the posthumous work of Copernicus as well. So, with a unanimous vote of 11 to 0 on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres by Nicholas Copernicus was added to the church's index of forbidden books. The belief that the earth revolved around the sun was now formal heresy. Cardinal Bellarmine, the hammer of heretics, met with Galileo directly and told him on no uncertain terms that he was not to teach or defend, orally or in writing, the position that the earth and the other planets revolved around a stationary sun. Galileo's passionate defense of his position had accomplished the exact opposite of what he had hoped. He had no choice now but to comply with the Church's orders. In the years that followed, the ideas of Copernicus lingered in Galileo's mind, though he did not advocate for them publicly. He developed an obsession with ocean tides, an ever-present force that ebbed and flowed like clockwork throughout the city of Venice, doing experiments with sloshing troughs of water Galileo became convinced tides might offer proof of the Earth's movement. Perhaps as the Earth spun with each passing day and hurtled through space, large bodies of water were being disturbed throughout the planet Earth. The fact that a clear correlation between the phases of the moon and the tides had been observed for quite some time did nothing to dissuade Galileo. When it came to natural phenomenon, whether on the Earth or in the heavens, Galileo always trusted his own judgment first and foremost. Astronomers had observed comets in the skies for centuries. Some astronomers believed, quite correctly, that comets were physical objects in the cosmos, much like the moon or the planets. But Galileo went on to publish a new book called The Assayer, in which he argued that comets were mere optical illusions a phenomenon relating to light rather than anything tangible. Through it all, though, Galileo remained a Catholic. Even his own daughters he had given over to the service of the church, though this was likely due to the fact that, as they were illegitimate children, they would have been practically unmarriageable. One of them took the name Maria Celeste, Not an uncommon name for a nun, necessarily, but in Latin, the name Celeste means of the heavens. And we know that Galileo corresponded many times with his daughter over the years regarding his work. Then, in 1623, a major event took place that would alter the course of Galileo's life. Pope Gregory XV died, and a group of cardinals met to select his successor. They found their new pope in Matteo Barberini, an old friend of Galileo's, a progressive man who had always admired Galileo's intelligence and quick wit. He even defended Galileo against the attacks of another cardinal at a court dinner in 1611. Now, Barberini had taken the name Pope Urban VIII, and invited the elderly Galileo for a visit to the Vatican. It had been over two decades since Galileo published his book, The Starry Messenger, about his discoveries in outer space. The two friends walked the lush, landscaped Vatican gardens, reminiscing about old times, with the new pope adorned in the finest robes. The question was raised of whether Galileo could publish any more books in his career. Inevitably, the old ideas of Copernicus found their way into the discussion. The Pope mused that perhaps God's creation was ultimately beyond human understanding. Of course, as the head of the Church, he had to acknowledge that the ideas of Copernicus were clearly identified as heretical many years prior. There was no way Galileo could argue openly in favor of such ideas. However, Pope Urban VIII acknowledged a loophole He said that if Galileo were to speak of this heliocentric conception of the universe as just one hypothetical theory among many, he could permit him to publish. No harm would come to him from such a text. So, in the following years, Galileo became consumed with a new project, the realization of all his life's work. There is evidence that he even sent portions of this new manuscript to his daughter, Maria Celeste who eagerly read them in her convent. It would be unlike anything Galileo had ever written before. It wasn't an academic book of facts and figures and numbers. It was an artfully written, charming rhetorical piece of political satire. While the Starry Messenger had been in Latin, his new book was written in Italian, a language not for scholars, but for the common man. After nearly a decade of writing, in 1632, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems was published. The book featured a discussion about science between three main characters. The first is a clearly brilliant man named Salviati, who often seems to be using the words and arguments of Galileo himself. Then there is Simplicio, a follower of Aristotle and Ptolemy. The last character is Segredo, an intelligent man who appears neutral, at least at first, on some of the topics of the debate. A variety of subjects in science are discussed, but a large portion of the text is a debate that pertains to the ideas of Copernicus. Salviati argues in favor of the heliocentric theory, offering several references to new discoveries from the moons of Jupiter to the phases of Venus. Simplicio disagrees vehemently, citing the time-honored foundations of Ptolemy's earth-centered conception of the cosmos. At times, the character seems to be simply reciting church doctrine. In contrast, Salviati speaks like a well-reasoned scientist, citing empirical evidence to support his views. Clearly, Galileo was speaking through his fictional alias. Near the conclusion of the dialogues, Simplicio muses that perhaps the creation of God is simply beyond human understanding. The book quickly began circulating around Rome, and a new controversy ensued. In the preface of the dialogues, Galileo clearly stated that Simplicio was named after a real-life philosopher and follower of the teachings of Aristotle, Simplicius. That was the name in Latin, but the book was written in Italian, and the Latin name translated to Simplicio, a name that had the connotation of a simpleton. One thing was certain. In Galileo's book, the character of Simplicio was not the intellectual equal of Salviati. He was a dim-witted commoner. And worse yet, the very argument Simplicio uses at the end of the book that the works of God could be beyond human understanding came directly from a statement by Pope Urban VIII. A commission at the Vatican was created to study the newly published book, but the consensus was forming that Galileo was mocking the Pope. Worse yet, a Spanish cardinal had recently suggested that Pope Urban VIII was a weak leader, a poor defender of the Church, who had failed to rise to the many challenges Catholicism was facing. Prior to the book's publication, there had been some in the Vatican who supported Galileo, or were at least open to his work, that support evaporated overnight. The Catholic Church's response to the elderly Galileo would be swift. He was ordered to appear in Rome. When he did, he was interrogated about his book, threatened with torture. It was clear that his book was not a scientific text that sought to examine two theories with total objectivity. It was a book that clearly endorsed Copernican ideas, the very ideas that Cardinal Bellarmine had explicitly forbidden Galileo to teach over a decade prior. It was heresy. The Church had warned him once before. Now, he faced torture and execution. He could save himself. The charge could be reduced to life in prison, but only if he were to renounce his actions under oath to abjure, curse, and detest the heliocentric theory. With a heavy heart, Galileo complied, making a disingenuous confession, renouncing the ideas of Copernicus, cursing the idea that the earth orbited the sun. And then, according to legend, he muttered aloud, Yet it moves. Dialogue concerning the two chief world systems was added to the index of forbidden books. Furthermore, the publishing of any of Galileo's works would also be forbidden. He was sentenced to life in prison. Taking into consideration that he was an elderly man, the sentence was later commuted to life under house arrest. Pope Urban VIII would never speak to Galileo again. A few months later his daughter Maria Celeste who had been in poor health for quite some time died of dysentery less than a decade later Galileo himself died in his home at the age of 77 at roughly the same time in history a German mathematician named Kepler had been working on a series of laws to explain in detail Planetary orbits. He too was persuaded by the ideas of Copernicus, saying, The laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image, so that we could share in his own thoughts. In 1687, Sir Isaac Newton published The Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy. In these three books, he explained the very force that holds planets in orbits around the sun—gravity. It was also the reason that people and objects were not flung off the surface of the Earth, even though we are spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. In 1758, the Catholic Church removed all published works on the heliocentric theory from its Index of Forbidden Books. In 1781, with the help of a more modern telescope, a new planet was discovered orbiting our sun in the outer solar system, Uranus. The formal discovery and recognition of Neptune followed in 1846, even though Galileo himself had caught sight of Neptune and sketched it hundreds of years earlier, mistaking it for a star. In 1930, another tiny world at the outer edge of the solar system was also discovered, Pluto. Galileo's telescope and his active heresy had ignited a scientific revolution and changed science itself forever. From that point onward, empirical evidence and observation would be a fundamental part of drawing any scientific conclusions about the universe that we lived in. Galileo had also forever altered the way we perceive our own planet and our place in the cosmos. Centuries after Galileo, a new revolution in astronomy took place, and our knowledge of the solar system took another giant leap. In the late 1960s, with the dawn of the space age, human beings conducted the first surveys of the moon, walking on its surface, bringing back hundreds of pounds of lunar rock and soil for study on the planet Earth. Within the same decade, the Soviet Union sent the first robotic probes to land on the planet Venus, called the Venera missions, from the Russian word for Venus. Venus is the closest planet to the Earth and the ultimate proof that Galileo had found for the heliocentric theory of Copernicus. But while Galileo had clearly observed the changing phases of Venus as it orbited the Sun over a period of months, the planet had been little more than a blurry, shining sphere in the eyepiece of his telescope. Unlike the moon, Galileo could not see any surface features on Venus. The planet was shrouded in thick clouds that seemed to permanently conceal the surface from view. In the centuries that followed, some speculated that perhaps the clouds were full of water vapor, much like the clouds of the Earth, and that perhaps Venus might be a world of tropical jungles and exotic alien life. The Soviet Venera probes found something very different. A hellish world of crushing atmospheric pressure, the hottest planet in the solar system. The clouds were filled, not with water vapor, but with sulfuric acid. The first pictures returned from the surface showed a world that was rocky, barren, and desolate. Temperatures were about 800 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to melt solid lead. The space probes survived for mere minutes before they were crushed, melted, and destroyed. In the late 1970s, twin American space probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, traveled hundreds of millions of miles out into outer space, making a journey of nearly two years to visit the outer solar system. Many spacecraft use solar panels to generate electricity, but so far away from the sun, such a power source would not be sufficient. Instead, the -the state-of-the-art spacecraft were powered by plutonium, using radioisotope thermoelectric generators. In 1979, they arrived at Jupiter, turning their onboard cameras towards the largest planet in the solar system. Astronomers and scientists at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory were then bombarded by a deluge of data, which they quickly began analyzing. Many of them worked 14-hour days, or longer, animated by the prospects of countless potential discoveries. Named after the Roman king of the gods, Jupiter is so immense that a thousand planet Earths could fit inside of it. Made mostly of hydrogen, and helium gas, the planet displays dazzling shades of red and orange bands of colors in their clouds, swirling around the upper atmosphere along with a massive red storm like a giant hurricane larger than the planet Earth, which has been raging for hundreds of years. Voyager 1 and 2 also took photographs of Jupiter's moons, the four largest moons of the planet, are called the Galilean Moons, named in honor of Galileo, the first human being to lay eyes on them. They are known as Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa, named after lovers of the Greek god Zeus. Ganymede is not only the largest of Jupiter's moons, but the largest moon in the entire solar system, larger than the planet Mercury, and nearly as large as the planet Mars. It is categorized as a moon merely because it does not orbit the sun. Made of water ice and silicate rock, it is the only moon in the solar system with its own magnetic field. Recent evidence suggests that it might even have a salty ocean some 100 miles below its surface. Jupiter's moon, Callisto, is speckled with countless craters, It has more craters than any world in the solar system. Astronomers also concluded that Callisto has the geologically oldest surface of any body in the solar system. It's about 4.5 billion years old. The Voyager probes also discovered a region on this moon which became known as Valhalla, named after the underworld afterlife in northern European mythology. Valhalla is the largest multi-ringed impact crater in the solar system. 2,000 miles wide, and we see rings within rings, as if the impact that caused the crater literally shattered the surface of the planet. It looks like a still photograph of ripples on a pond. Another Galilean moon, Io, looks far more colorful than all the rest. Io is full of shades of yellow white and orange, coated in sulfur and sulfur dioxide. As astronomers on Earth reviewed photos of Io in the spring of 1979, astronomer Linda Morabito Kelly noticed what appeared to be a massive cloud on that moon. The Viticon cameras on the spacecraft were sometimes prone to optical distortion, and it wasn't clear what exactly had appeared in the photo. Perhaps this striking image evoked the same sort of emotional awe, bewilderment, and curiosity that Galileo himself felt centuries prior, and the same intense drive to make sense of it. Linda Morbido Kelly went on to work for a nonprofit organization called the Planetary Society. But looking back on her work and at that particular image of Io she described her experience in the following words, quote, it was a moment for every astronomer, every planetary scientist lives for. When you see something like that, it evokes the deepest questions of your scientific interest. After some initial inquiries and checking with the head of the optical navigation team, I was alone with that image of Io and had a few quiet moments to reflect. I had a sense that what I was seeing was something that no one else had seen before. Without verification, it was only a sense, but I knew what I was seeing was extremely important. Those moments were the stuff of dreams. They passed quickly as I dug in to determine what the anomaly was. My instinct as a scientist took over. And even though I was working in the field of engineering at the time, I was an astronomer by training, and very, very well prepared to move this forward. I wanted to know what this was. I immediately began considering each and every possibility. Was it real? Was it not? I systematically consulted the camera experts to determine whether it could be a artifact, blemish, or whether any quality of the camera might be able to induce the appearance of this anomaly. Over the next six hours, every single possibility of what this anomaly might be was eliminated, until only one possible explanation remained. The anomaly was correlated with the surface of Io. End quote. At the time, planetary scientist Stanton Peel and his colleagues had predicted that they might encounter volcanic activity on Io, this new image confirmed it. It wasn't merely a cloud. The moon of Io was the first time in human history where they observed volcanic eruptions taking place on a world other than the Earth. The volcanic eruption in the photograph was simply so massive, it almost looked like a photographic anomaly. Eruptions on Io can spike up to 300 miles above the surface. In retrospect, the data showed volcanoes everywhere on the surface of Io, but they hadn't been recognized instantly. The largest active volcano in the solar system was also found on Io, a place called Loki Patera, a lake of molten lava more than 120 miles wide, constantly being refilled. And finally, Europa, the smallest of the Galilean moons, but still quite large, nearly the same size as the Earth's moon. Galileo proved that Aristotle's conception of the Earth's moon as a perfectly smooth sphere was incorrect. But when astronomers gazed on Europa in Voyager's 1979 photographs, they encountered a world that almost conformed to such a description. Europa had the smoothest surface of any world in the solar system, and was relatively young, geologically speaking. Like a giant snowball, its surface is a shell of ice covered in cracks and abrasions. As the immense gravity of Jupiter tugs and pulls on Europa, a process called tidal flexing or tidal heating takes place. For this reason, despite its distance from the sun, Europa likely has an entire ocean of liquid water under its icy crust, with perhaps twice as much water as all the Earth's oceans combined. The deepest place in the Earth's oceans is nearly seven miles deep, but Europa's oceans might be well over 50 miles deep. In virtually every corner of the planet Earth where there is liquid water, There are living organisms, even in the furthest depths of our oceans, under immense and crushing pressures, life survives. Perhaps someday within our lifetimes, a new generation of space probes will drill beneath Europa's icy shell and drop a space submarine into its depths to answer whether marine life is indeed thriving in this vast and unexplored ocean. And the four Galilean moons are just the largest out of a whopping 79 moons that we know are orbiting Jupiter today. These four moons, which were only distant points of light to Galileo, were entire worlds revealed to us by the Voyager spacecraft, every bit as real as our own planet Earth. And their mysteries and wonders still beckon. Voyager 1 went on to visit Saturn, along with Voyager 2, before charting a course towards the outer edge of the solar system. Voyager 2 visited Uranus in 1986, and finally, the planet Neptune in 1989. Hurtling towards the outskirts of the solar system, on Valentine's Day of 1990, Voyager 1 turned its cameras back to look at the faint orb of the sun in the distance. The late astronomer Carl Sagan had pushed hard for this once-in-a-lifetime photo op. The spacecraft then snapped a series of photographs that came to be known as the solar system's family portrait. Distant images of Venus, Earth, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all of them revolving around the Sun. Just as Copernicus had drawn them in his book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres centuries before. Galileo himself once said, quote, Nature is relentless and unchangeable, and it is indifferent as to whether its hidden reasons and actions are understandable to man or not. In 2008, the remains of Copernicus were discovered in the obscure, unmarked grave in which he'd been buried centuries earlier. In a new ceremony, he was reburied in a place seemingly prepared for royalty. On his tomb, a large headstone with six planets orbiting a solid gold sun. Sometime after 2012, the Voyager probes entered interstellar space, the space between the stars. They continue on, traversing a billion miles through space about every three years. Among the images in Voyager's family portrait was a pale blue dot, taking up a little more than a single pixel in a sea of black. It is the subject of Carl Sagan's now famous Pale Blue Dot speech. In it, he said, quote, The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. What is the glory and triumph of the greatest conquerors and builders of empires? They were momentary masters of a fraction of a blue dot. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from the outside to save us from ourselves. Doing that is up to us. End quote. Today, we know that thousands of years ago, in the classical civilization of ancient Greece, an ancient astronomer named Aristarchus suggested that the planets might very well orbit a stationary sun. But his contemporaries, men like Aristotle and Ptolemy, rejected this notion. So this heliocentric theory never found any traction. For roughly 2,000 years after that, the Earth-centered model of the solar system was accepted by virtually every scientist and academic. Some historians believe that Copernicus conceived his own heliocentric theory completely independently of Aristarchus. But Copernicus was cautious and hesitant by nature, and may have never published his manuscript if not for a German mathematician named Reticus pressured him to go public, and the book that Copernicus published might have forever remained in obscurity, if not for a brilliant, egotistical professor named Galileo, the heretic. We will leave you now with Galileo's own words. Quote, facts which seem improbable will, even on scant explanation." Drop the cloak which has hidden them, and stand forth in naked and simple beauty.